In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. David Perdue plans to police the election. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein, joined by political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell in Washington and Patricia Murphy here in Atlanta. We'll digest another defeat for Democrats on voting rights legislation coming up, plus a look at how year one went for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and President Biden. But we want you to count on this podcast during the 2020 election season in this historic battle for the governor's mansion. So we'll begin with David Perdue continuing to pay off what he promised in his announcement speech. This campaign is all about the 2020 election. Instead of protecting our elections, he caved to Abrams and cost us two Senate seats, the Senate majority, and gave Joe Biden free reign. Think about how different it would be today if Kemp had fought Abrams first instead of fighting Trump. Patricia and Tia, thanks so much for joining us, and let's get right to it. David Perdue promising to, to, to create an election integrity unit that would police voter fraud allegations, even though there has been no evidence of any sort of widespread voting pr- fraud in the state. Patricia, David Perdue promised this, this brutal battle over 2020, and we're getting exactly that. Well, and he's digging straight into the area that is primarily the difference between him and Governor Brian Kemp. It's the reason that Donald Trump recruited Senator Perdue to get into this race against the governor. And I've also spoken with a number of Republican campaigns, and this is still a problem for Republican voters. They know in their own polling that um, election integrity, as they now frame it, um, is a huge issue. And so uh, this is the one real area of white space between Perdue and the governor. And he's digging right right into it. Um, There are a number of um, details with this proposal that should be discussed, but I think the politics are extremely obvious. Yeah, Tia, uh, we don't know many specifics about this proposal, how much it would cost, if he could even get it passed in the legislature if he's elected governor. Um, But it's one of, I'm counting at least three or four different moves um, in the opening weeks of his campaign that focus on 2020. He said he wouldn't have certified the election. He said he would have called a special session to, in his words, fix election issues, even though there's been, again, no evidence of any sort of election issues tying up the election results. And he also joined a conspiracy theorist lawsuit in Fulton County. So already, even as senior Republicans are saying, look forward, he's looking back. Yeah, it's been, it's so interesting to watch because number one, as you both have mentioned, it's short on specifics, a lot of what David Perdue has said, like, what would this new election integrity police force do that like GBI can't already do if it's asked to look into an election or 
you know, a district attorney or the state election board, which I know Republicans want to take the power away from the state election board and the secretary of state's office. But it's not like those investigative powers don't already exist. But what we keep seeing from David Perdue is it's all about like the messaging and the signaling to like MAGA and Trump world. And it's so transparent. It almost makes me baffled, like, because it is so transparent. There's, there seems to be almost no nuance here. No, you know, a lot of these things aren't even trying to make it seem like it's rooted in any policy. It's just like, what do we think Trump people want? Say that. You know, it's funny about that, Patricia, is I saw on CNN that Governor Ron DeSantis had proposed something similar. And I tweeted on a whim, you know, any bets on how long this will take root in Georgia. And almost immediately I got texts saying um, from different campaign operatives saying, yeah, it's going to come sooner than you think. And then it came a day later. So um, this is just another example of of these far right sort of pro Trump elements taking root all over the nation. Cause this will be a proposal that we'll see beyond, far beyond Florida. Well, I think it's two pronged. I think it's an effort to both get the attention and the um, interest and loyalty of Donald Trump voters. I think it also has a lot to do with getting Donald Trump's attention and making sure that he's still happy and engaged in this race. Um, there is a uh, there have been a couple of races around the country where candidates who are not candidates in Florida, but they have started buying Florida TV time in Palm Beach just to be in front of Donald Trump on his own TV. And I think that that is a, an element of absolutely this uh, David Perdue campaign. It's an element of um, we can go through the races on this Georgia ticket already, that it is about uh, getting in front of Donald Trump, uh, being liked and supported, endorsed and beloved by Donald Trump, and then uh, bringing those voters along with them as well. And so um, for the Purdue piece, uh, let's put aside the fact that there have been hundreds of investigations of the Georgia election already. Um, to Tia's point, the GBI has the investigative authority. The Secretary of State's office has the sec- has the investigative authority. They have a unit, a team of investigators who it's not just an election. They don't just Google it. They actually go to people's homes and say, we need to see this, this, and this. Um, they have tracked down the people who voted for for dead people. And in uh, two cases, it was people voting for their dead loved ones trying to find out or trying to imagine what they would have done had they been able to vote um, if they were alive. Um, they're very small instances, but they uh, spin off these very large, deep investigations. And for Purdue to make this proposal, it creates the impression that there is not already an investigative arm, both within the state and the federal level. Election fraud is a federal crime, um, and it's also a state crime. And so uh, there are lots of crimes and lots of investigations associated with everything that David Perdue is proposing and would be duplicating with this. Um, But it's something that obviously has uh, gotten our attention. It's going to get Trump voters' attention as well. It will. And, you know, we're seeing these national polls that show um, Trump's popularity with the Republicans nationally on the wane. But still, it's that that 36 percent or that one third that, that is helping to drive this conversation. And Tia, I, I went to the DeKalb GOP meeting over the weekend and, and heard firsthand David Perdue's message to, to, to you know, 
Republican activists who are willing to show up early on a Saturday morning, um, uh, basically right before the snow, um, to hear David Perdue, and it was all about Trump. So it shows that even even if his popularity is waning in a Republican primary, these candidates still feel like Trump is the sort of all important figure. Yeah, and it. I don't know what can be said that hasn't already been said, and I think that it's clear that once again, David Perdue is calculating that, and not just David Perdue, a lot of Republicans are calculating that they can be far right to win a competitive primary um, where being loyal to Trump, being very MAGA, being very much a supporter of Stop the Steal can help you know, ignite a base that has a lot of, you know, more than one person to choose from. Again, I just, I wonder what his handlers think is going to be the way to pivot when you have to win a general election and when roughly half of Georgia voters, you know, roughly half of Georgia voters are not in line with this line of thinking and and the trackers are going to, have all this video footage of David Perdue saying these things that not only are they not rooted in clear policy, but some of it is rooted in misinformation or falsehoods. Mm -hmm. And Patricia, meanwhile, Stacey Abrams, she, she rolled out her first big endorsements from, from unions this week. She had her first in-person campaign event. Um, that was that was well attended and got a lot of media coverage, but you know her philosophy towards this infighting for Republicans is she she said it herself. She says I'm kind of twisting an African pro- proverb, but it goes like this in her words: um, when the elephants are fighting, stay off the grass. And so she's been trying to kind of stay off the grass, let it let let the two Republicans batter each other. And meanwhile, she can talk about labor support. She can talk about expanding Medicaid. She can talk about whatever the priorities, and, and she's still rolling out some more. We're, we're going to hear some of her criminal justice priorities in the next few weeks, but she can roll out her agenda and let Republicans batter each other rather than try to face their unified attack. Yeah. And because Stacey Abrams does not have a primary opponent and does not even know who she's going to be running against, because the Republicans are so preoccupied occupied with themselves, she doesn't really have to say anything about either one of them, doesn't have to commit to opposing something that uh, the governor is proposing or that David Perdue is proposing. She can just let them work that out amongst themselves. Um, she doesn't need to take any positions right now that are going to be areas that she has to crawl back from for a general election. Um, she's not going to have to go out and defend her left flank um, or even possibly her right flank from a uh, primary um, and then figure out a way to appeal to general election voters. It's just a real luxury that she has here that uh, Governor Kemp in particular uh, does not. It's obviously that it's obvious that David Perdue has staked out of his ground, but it's up to Governor Kemp to decide how far right can he go and still have a realistic chance to both win a general election and also continue to govern this state. Um, I asked him about the proposal from David Perdue to eliminate the state income tax. And uh, Governor Kemp said, hey, listen, that's easy to say. So easy to say. Hey, I'm open to it. Let's see the numbers. Let's see the proof 
that this doesn't mean you're going to have to go back in and start to put sales tax on groceries. Guess what, Georgians? You don't have sales taxes on groceries right now. You don't have sales taxes on services. You don't go to your lawyer and then pay 4% on top of that in a service tax because of the income tax. And so he said, sure, everyone can talk about that, but I have to govern the state. And so um, he has just this sort of this uh, double whammy of uh, the rhetoric. Um, as a governor, you just can't go there in a lot of cases. But as somebody challenged from the right, you're going to be pressed to do that anyway. Yeah. And Patricia, you hit on it. I've been calling it the, the the squeeze, but I think double whammy is a perfect way to describe it because on one hand, he's facing Stacey Abrams, who has her own agenda and can attack Republicans for, for not pursuing that. But on the other hand, you have David Perdue, who can kind of go out there and say, I would be doing everything that Brian Kemp is doing, but I've done it earlier and I've been, done it even more conservatively. And that's kind of what he's doing with income taxes, with education policy, with guns, saying he would have been more urgent in passing a rollback in gun restrictions. And meanwhile, you know, Brian Kemp's saying, I'm the guy who actually has to do this. Right, Tia? I have a question for you. Oh, yeah. So... You know how David Perdue has been saying, I could have done all this, but done it earlier. Correct me if I'm wrong. Serious question. Didn't he Mm -hmm. go kind of silent after he lost his runoff? Because it seems to me, I wonder, and I know the Kemp people think he's full of it, but I wonder if the MAGA Republicans, are there also not questions about him being full of it? Because if he wanted to do all these things earlier, you know, be a champion of Stop the Steal and and all those things, where was he for the last eight months, nine months, where Trump supporters have been peddling Stop the Steal? Not saying they were rooted in reality, but he went away for eight months and had very little to say about Donald Trump. And now that he's running for governor, he's got so much to say about defending Donald Trump and his policies. And my, I guess my, what I'm wondering is, is, is that coming up at all? Or are people just not, not questioning why he's going so hard now in ways we really didn't see from him, especially after January 5th? Good question. I want to get Patricia in on this, but first, I mean, my gut is that, look, he first was thinking about running a, a comeback attempt for U.S. Senate. So he spent a couple of weeks there, ruled it out pretty quickly, and yeah, went really quiet. Um, you know, was at the Georgia GOP meeting over the over the last summer. Um, he was supposed to introduce Governor Kemp. It was supposed to be this big deal. He did introduce the governor, but didn't endorse him. So that was maybe one of the first signs that, hey, this this challenge could actually really happen started going around the state talking about election integrity, but not in a high-profile way, not not even as high-profile as Kelly Leffler, who started the uh, the, the Greater Georgia um, GOP voting group. Um, you know, one of the questions that's come up to him very often is, why are you running for governor when you could have had a clear shot at, at a rematch for Senate? And he essentially said he couldn't run for Senate because he'd be on the same ticket as Brian Kemp. And that with Brian Kemp on that ticket, it would bog down the entire GOP slate. So that was his answer. He even said it the other day at the at the at the grassroots meeting that I attended. Um, but Patricia, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why he kind of went quiet for a few months and now it's burst back into the scene. 
Yeah, I think anybody who loses an election, especially such a high profile election, especially against a relatively low profile candidate like John Ossoff, um, I think people fully expected him. And it probably was a real human reaction to sort of go underground for a minute and just be like, wow, that was super embarrassing. <laughs> you know, um, And then plot out your future. But you can't ignore the wild card in the room and the wild card in the entire Republican Party. Like, what direction is this party going in? How much of a role is Donald Trump going to continue to play? And if you want to still be in office, if you still want power, and that's your goal, what's your play? I think he was, I don't know what he was doing, actually, to be honest with you. None of us knows what he was doing. Um, But I think for many candidates in the GOP, they have really needed to see what's the lay of the land. And is there a space for me where the land lays right now? We'll have to leave it right there. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. We're back. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm here with political insiders Patricia Murphy and Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent. We combine each morning and really each night uh, for, to write the morning jolt, which sets the agenda and sets the stakes in Georgia politics. And our producer, Jay Black, has a little slot in here for me to talk about where, what's coming up Friday. I don't really know what's coming up Friday, Patricia and Tia. What do you have on your plate for Friday's jolt? Well, I had to think for a second what day is today <laughs> so but i, I can tell you about friday <laughs> today is thursday but for everybody else it's whatever yes. day you want it to be well you know we don't know exactly what's in the jolt because we don't know exactly what the news will be friday morning because it's cooked hot and fresh every morning um i know tia has some content um and then my column this weekend is an interview with senator warnock um about his first year in the senate tia what do you have for the jolt tomorrow i was going to say i think one thing i know will include in the jolt is our colleague Tamar Hallerman's big scoop about Fulton District Attorney Fannie Willis wanting to impanel a special grand jury to investigate that um, call that former President Trump placed the Secretary of State Raffensperger in the general investigation into whether President Trump broke the law and trying to influence the outcome of Georgia's election. So that's a big AJC scoop, and I know that'll be in the jolt. Of course, we have the Human Rights Campaign endorsing Warnock. You know, we always like to include the latest endorsement news, but those are the couple of things off the top of my head. But like you guys said, we're it's a little bit early for us. You know, it's only 5 p.m. We got a whole 12, <laughs> 13 hours before we finalize the jolt. And I mean, she's not kidding, too, when she says 12, 13 hours, because at 5 a.m., Patricia will be up. I will not, but Patricia will be awake 
um, crafting the final touches, putting the final touches. Yes, Greg, I'll be up at 3.30. Let's just give me a little, let's give me my full credit, although I'll be asleep very shortly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We we, we kind of work, we all work in kind of opposite schedules. But Tia, you mentioned Senator Warnock. Um, This was a big week for him and not the greatest of weeks for him. The federal voting rights bill was blocked by a filibuster. Democrats could not overcome that filibuster. Um, and we heard a lot of rhetoric from 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 Democrats, including Stacey Abrams, saying 52 senators failed us. That is the 50 Republicans, in her view, and two Democrats, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, both did not join with the rest of their caucus to roll back filibuster rules. This is despite pleas from Senators Ossoff and Warnock, who gave an impassioned delivery last night. Let's listen. I speak for the state of Georgia when I say do not invoke Congressman Lewis' name to signal your virtue while you work to erode his legacy and defy his will. I want to appeal to all of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle, not just as a colleague, but as a pastor and as a man of faith. The American people have sent us here and history has summoned us to this moment. We cannot hide. Whatever the outcome tonight, I still believe in us. I believe in the U.S. Tia, you've been covering the story more than any other Georgia reporter. So where do Democrats go from here? That is the question of the hour. Um, there is a bipartisan group um, that includes Mansion and Cinema, those moderates who did not agree to change the filibuster rules. So the more robust legislation that Democrats want is stalled. But there's a bipartisan group of Democrats, Mansion and Cinema, and some Republicans that are trying to come up with a compromise that can pass and be filibuster proof. Now, we know that. As a result, that is not going to include most of the things Democrats want, but it could include things like clarifying how electoral um, college ballots are counted to avoid some of the gray areas that Trump allies tried to exploit on January 6th. It could use it could include some protections for election workers from harassment and things like that that we also saw. Um, particularly from supporters of President Donald Trump. Now, the question will be what else could be added? For example, there's been a lot of conversation about how not very long ago, during the George W. Bush era, the Voting Rights Act was easily, you know, renewed, reauthorized. And Mm. after the 2013 Supreme Court decision, it became a partisan issue. So the question is, is there a way to draft the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act that instills some type of preclearance, which is what was in there before, and again, what Republicans used to reauthorize? Could they find some language that Republicans, at least 10, could agree to? Um, Again, it won't go as far as what Democrats have been fighting for. Things like you know, universal federal, you know, standards for absentee balloting and voter registration and drop boxes, those things are not going to happen. But the question is what small parts of the law could happen when it comes to 
making the integrity of elections secure um, and something that can't be thwarted by an individual candidate. Patricia, Republicans are pitching this as this epic failure from the Biden administration of Senate Democrats. Um, Supporters of this legislation are pointing out that this is a big overhaul. It it takes years sometimes to get this this type of legislation through. It took decades, really, to get voting rights legislation through during the civil rights era. Um, So they're pitching this as really the start of a longer push. I think the answer is kind of somewhere in the middle, though. You know, it's hard for for Democrats to put this as anything other than a failure. But at the same time, they can also argue that, hey, you know, if, if we get victories in the midterms, we can we can push for some more broader, broader legislation. Yeah. So 57 of these senators who are in the chamber right now voted to impeach Donald Trump um, after January 6th. Uh, so I do think there is some space to find uh, that group of senators, uh, it, it's hard to believe that they wouldn't want to take also some steps to prevent an attack on the election and on election results that they were uh, really voicing their objection to with that impeachment vote as well. So I think there is some space. Um, and then you you know need to get three more. Um, I think that's possible. And I think that the Voting Rights Act, um, a lot of the reason I think it was reauthorized was because the Supreme Court uh, had not intervened at that point. Um, but I think uh, all of these election officials, you know, they're on the ballot themselves. They want to make sure that there's a ballot that not only has integrity in their voters' minds, but then also... Um, that they believe is fair, that they believe will actually count the votes that are cast for them. So it's in their best interest at this point to have federal election law that will protect their own elections. And if they have confidence in the fact that they would get elected with the votes that are cast, they'd want to make sure that they're counted as well. Um, So I do think there's space. This was just a gigantic bill. If you think about um, something like campaign finance reform, there was an effort with John McCain and um, Senator Feingold from Wisconsin, and it took years for McCain-Feingold to pass, which was um, a campaign finance reform bill. And that's just a piece of what this bill is. Um, The Civil Rights um, Act and the Voting Rights Act, those took more than a decade to get through and to get um, to to turn into law. And so these are long efforts. I think it takes sustained efforts. It sometimes takes some failures. And sometimes it takes getting people on the record as a no before you can get them on the record as a yes. And Dia, this is an issue you highlighted. I mean, as big of a setback it was for the Biden administration, imagine if he had pushed this legislation. Imagine if he hadn't pushed for a vote. What message would that have sent to his base of supporters, to the the black voters who came out and drove to support him in Georgia and other battleground states. Yeah, that's what you have to remember. You know, people are saying, why would Senate Democrats and the White House pursue this issue when they knew they didn't have the votes to pass it? But the alternative was to ignore something that is so very important, particularly to black voters, particularly black voters in the South. You have to remember that we're not talking about that long ago when um, governments, again, particularly in the Deep South, actively engaged in tactics to discourage Black people from voting. And the people who were affected by those laws and policies are still living today. So we're not talking about ancient history. We're talking about things that happened just a generation ago. And so 
for Black people, it's important that the federal government, and again, in light of all that we've seen happen in the last year, it became even more of an issue for Black people to say, if our vote matters, protect it. And um, and I think the White House is listening and knows that they can't be perceived as not listening to Again, this base that you can't win in Georgia without black voters. If black voters stay home, none of these Democrats can win. And so it is a delicate balance because at the end of the day, it's a losing game. But you can either lose with a fight or without one. And it's clear that the White House and again, Senate leaders have decided This is a fight worth having. And I'll also say talking to Senator Warnock, you know, we've said he doesn't come from politics. He's never held office before. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to give him so much. He's, he's, He's a politician. He's a political being, but he doesn't come from the politics world. And there are people like Warnock who said, I seen you change the rules. We changed it to lift the debt ceiling. So it's not that it can't be done. So how is voting rights not important enough to get it done? So, you know, it's it's a complicated issue and um, black voters are discouraged. But I do think that the messaging so far has come across that this is Republicans who are using the filibuster to block it and that if you're going to blame Democrats, you've got to blame Manchin and Sinema. And of the two, Manchin's in a state where, yeah, he's probably not the most, you know, he's not the most progressive Democrat. But right now, without him, even less gets done. Now, Cinema, you could say we can get a more progressive in there and she can still win in Arizona. But I don't think that's the case in in, no. in West Virginia. Yeah, so it's a lot of one it's, Democrat. it's complicated. Yeah, there might be one Democrat in all of West Virginia who win that seat, and that's Joe Manchin, who was also the former governor. Well, well Tia, that battle you, you were talking about was fought on the eve of a major anniversary. Thursday also marked the end of year one of the Joe Biden presidency and the day that Ossoff and Warnock were sworn in to office, flipping control of the chamber. Let's listen. It's been a year of challenges, but it's also been a year of enormous progress. We went from 2 million people being vaccinated at the moment I was sworn in to 210 million Americans being fully vaccinated today. We created 6 million new jobs, more jobs in one year than any time before. Unemployment dropped, the unemployment rate dropped to 3.9%. Child poverty dropped by nearly 40%, the biggest drop ever in American history. Tia, you've got this front row seat in Washington to the impact that just the elections of Ossoff and Warnock have had the nation, the course of the nation and the course of of Joe Biden's presidency, because without Democratic control of the Senate, we see a dramatically different agenda from the White House right now. That's right. You know, we have the American Rescue Plan, which was a COVID relief bill. Um, No Republicans um, supported it. We had the um, the infrastructure bill, you know, very few Republicans supported it, none from Georgia. So, you know, there have been some legislative victories that, again, you needed Ossoff and Warnock there to give Democrats that majority. You know, I've said it before, without Ossoff and Warnock giving Democrats the majority, 
it's not just that certain bills wouldn't have the votes to pass. It's certain bills would have never seen the light of day. There are um, appointments that President Biden has made, including, you know, those judicial candidates that are coming up that will um, take the federal bench in Georgia if they're confirmed. It's likely that a lot of those might not might have been blocked by Republicans from the jump. You know, so there are a lot of federal appointments from the White House that are being confirmed. So there's a lot of ramifications of what happened in Georgia. And you see that in, you know, Schumer and President Biden, that shows they're constantly talking about the importance of Georgia. They're constantly giving Ossoff and Warnock a much larger platform than other freshman senators are receiving. And it shows why. Yeah, and Patricia, we're starting to see the two senators kind of get more comfortable with that role, that they're not just your average freshman senators. I saw Senator Warnock at the Eggs and Issues breakfast um, about a week ago, and he told the crowd he wasn't afraid to remind senior Democrats how they came to wield their power. This is what he said. I look at that gavel in their hand and I remind them that Georgia put those gavels in their hand, and it works. You're looking at the most junior member of the U.S. Senate, but I punch way above my weight. So clearly, Senator Warnock is coming into terms with it with his uh, with his clout there. Well, I'm sure he said that because it's true. And uh, just because of the timing of the two Senate runoffs, the Senate and the future of the Senate and the power of the Senate really did hang in the balance. And that has everything to do with um, not just how many votes they have, um, obviously what Tia said, uh, what bills come up, and then um, who holds those chairmanships. And that makes or breaks a senator's career. Are you the chairman of a committee or are you just the ranking member? Are you saying yes or are you just the guy trying to say no? Um, It makes every difference in the daily lives of these senators. They even have larger committees rooms. They have larger staffs. The minute that they had those two Georgia Democrats hired, uh, a number of senators were able to go out and just start hiring more staff just because of the majority and because of the power and the money that accrues from that, even for just their own individual resources. And so uh, they look at those two senators and they think, that was great. (laughs) That was great. Uh, It's also, I think, a reason that they have not jammed Manchin and Cinema so hard. Um, It is completely possible that Manchin or Cinema could walk out of a a, um, caucus meeting at some point and say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm switching parties. And then those senators lose all of their chairmanships. They lose all of those yes votes that they were going to get on their pending nominees, on those pending ambassadorships. So it is so, um, it's just a real balance. But right now, Democrats are enjoying the direction that the balance is going. And that is thanks 100% to Ossoff and Warnock. Although I think that Patricia, you're right. Senator, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer must be staying up late at night, worrying that at any moment, Kirsten Cinema, or... Joe Manchin could just say, you know what, I've had enough with this. Well, that is all the time we have for today's show. Don't forget, we have plenty of podcasts from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for you to take with you when you head out this weekend. Earlier this week on this feed, James Salzer stopped by to break down the largest budget in Georgia history. In sports, we want to congratulate Sarah Spencer on the terrific premiere of her new podcast, The Hawks Report. Catch her very candid interview with star forward John Collins, who is still at this moment an Atlanta Hawk. And coming up Monday, play-by-play man Bob Rathbun stops by. On Southern Fried Soccer, Doug Robertson previews Atlanta United training camp. 
And over at the Bowtie Chronicles, our Falcons beat reporter D. Orlando Ledbetter, D. Led, and columnist Michael Cunningham look at which free agents Atlanta should keep and those they should let go. Finally, Access Atlanta digs into how restaurants are dealing with Omicron. Thank you guys, Tia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy, for joining this podcast. And of course, thank you always to our producer, Jay Black. We appreciate so much your comments, your feedback, your texts. I got three emails just in the last two days from people saying they just discovered this podcast. It warms our hearts to get those types of emails from folks saying how much they they love listening to this podcast. And keeps me employed. And it keeps Jay Black employed. And we will see you guys next week. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,